Hello all and welcome back to Rehab Roundup. I'm Jo Corrado, a rehabilitation medicine trainee based in West Yorkshire. And today, one of the focuses of this podcast is on amputee rehabilitation. And I'm really pleased to be able to introduce Dr. Simon Shaw, consultant in rehabilitation medicine based at Guy's and St. Thomas's in London. Simon's got really interesting roles as the lead clinician at the Bowley Close Regional Specialist Rehabilitation Service for assistive technology. And that incorporates prosthetics, orthotics, specialist seating and assistive communication. And he's also the lead for the post-polio service through the Lane Fox Respiratory Service at St. Thomas's. So welcome to the show, Simon. Thank you. And um, we've obviously had a little bit of a chat prior to this conversation. And and what what was really apparent to me was that you've had such a fascinating career journey before you became a rehabilitation medicine specialist. Um, and I think it really highlights the varied training routes into into the specialty. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, mine was probably the most unplanned, uh, but quite synchronous and very fortuitous journey you can ever imagine. Um, when I first qualified, um, I remember doing my house jobs at York District Hospital. And uh, I felt that um, medicine was a bit of a shocker for me. You know, the, the nights and the hierarchies and the stress of it all. Um, I originally wanted to do surgery. Um, I couldn't really understand all the hundreds and normal tests that used to come back uh, doing medicine. (laughs) And I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I escaped to Australia um, and I was there for a couple of years, but I got really fed up with the whole thing. And I I literally tried to leave medicine. I was essentially a very creative, frustrated creative. And um, I met uh, fortuitously in London uh, a gentleman who was uh, at the end of his career and he was uh, in his 20s, he had learned to fly. And in the end of his career, he was not only flying, but he was teaching people to fly. And he had fallen in love with Canada and he was a GP for the Inuits, the Eskimos, and he had a whole range of options and, and roles from anesthesia to A&E. And he really encouraged me to do my creative bit. So I went off in my 20s uh, to do dance. And I was uh, really an athlete at school and I was also very good at visual art. And I found contemporary dance and my thing. And, and I, um, I was at Northern School of Contemporary Dance for a year. This is when I was 27. In fact, Paloma Faith was in my year above me. And I remember having a cup of tea with her. And wow. it was a, I was more related getting into dance school than I was medical school. It was pretty much like fame. And uh, I, I then got a scholarship to the Laban Centre in London. And that's when things got really interesting uh, about uh, analysing movement and choreography, but very much the work of Rudolf Laban and movement analysis and how uh, people can really reach their potential through uh, movement by connecting with each other and in their environment. And um, I was coming into my late 20s and this was professional dance training. I was dancing eight hours a day and it was really horrendous. I thought medicine was bad. Uh, and uh, essentially what happened was uh, I converted to a, a, a more of a vocational course called Profession- Diploma in Professional Dance and Education. And that's when I first focused on disabilities, going into special needs schools with kids, uh, doing arts projects in mainstream schools, uh, working with adults. And it was then I completed that course and I went into paediatrics 
um, and particularly eventually going into community pediatrics and really looking at developmental and neurodevelopmental pediatrics. And again, it was just, it's all a bit, bit of a, an unplanned journey. And um, I worked in Greenwich with a great guy called Dirk Mirstadt, um, and uh, they sponsored me to do a dance therapy training, believe it or not. And I worked with kids with autism and ADHD and other things. And I got my exams in pediatrics. And at that point, I wasn't really cut out for, you know, that, that very acute registrar training run, running between, you know, neonates and wards and, and the, the rest of it. And so I decided to finish something off and that was general practice. But uh, I, I eventually was a GP for seven years. Um, and nobody was really interested in the pediatric side of things, particularly. And I uh, eventually did some a graduate course in, in management and leadership and also, I did this osteopathic medicine course, which was two days a week for 18 months. And yeah. it was almost turning 40 that someone mentioned rehabilitation medicine. And I, and I got the buzz. I just thought, you know, this is something I can do. I can do everything mm -hmm. in one thing. You know, I was really interested in people all the way along my career. I was interested in the biography of people as well as the biology of medicine. And that's really important mm -hmm. to really put the patient at the center. And so rehab medicine with you know, it's it's an array of of um, of areas from spinal medicine to amputee to neuro rehab and right. you know and other areas. I could really see how I could utilize a lot of my holistic skills and you know everything that I'd experienced before and to treat adults and children. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and who was it that can you remember who who it was that mentioned rehabilitation to you? Because that was a, like a real key moment in your life, I suppose. But when, uh, when they... uh, it was a guy called Rod, and and uh, I'm just trying to remember his, his his last name now. But he was essentially a specialist in musculoskeletal medicine and set up the mm -hmm. really was uh, a founder of the British Institute of Musculoskeletal Medicine, which mm. um, is it, not going anymore, I don't think. But um, you know, and, and he was the, ch so I, I really set out to look really specialized in musculoskeletal medicine, but yeah. um, which isn't really a specialty in this country, but I eventually uh, have found myself really as a disability specialist, essentially, yeah. treating adults and kids, yeah. Fantastic. And um, a major aspect of your consultant role then is, is the lead for the prosthetics, orthotics, specialist seating and assistive communication service um, at Bowley Close. Um, and for, for trainees, amputee rehabilitation is a, a very core part of our training curriculum. Um, so I wondered if you could maybe talk a little bit about what that aspect of your role is like and maybe what type of patients we might expect to see as trainees when we do that, that area of the curriculum. No, sure. So, so we're, we're quite lucky at, at uh, Guy St Thomas's where we really manage the whole amputee and limb loss pathway. And we cover King's College Hospital, the trauma centre, uh, but also the uh, vascular wards, both at King's and, and Guy's St. Thomas's. Um, and also we have the, apart from vascular wards and trauma, we have, um, you know, the orthopaedic wards. And we, but we have kids and, and children. We've also got the Evelina Hospital. Where, so we're managing pre-amputation, um, you know, and that's both uh, elective and uh, in the acute scenario. Often uh, plastic surgeons or orthopedic surgeons often ring me to, to say, you know, where they're going to do the amputation, how they're going to do it. Or I'm often mm. giving a second opinion about, you know, do we do nothing? Do we reconstruct here or do we do amputation? Um, and, you know, I find it quite an exciting role. 
Um, we've also got an, uh, an amputee rehabilitation ward, a 12-bedded ward, uh, which we are sort of a, a leading light on, where we take people straight after amputation. Uh, so that's quite interesting. Mm. We've also got a, an orthotic service that really is the regional orthotic service uh, covering the hospitals and also in the communities and, and you know, so children and adults. Um, we're involved in complex orthotics. Um, we had a chap the other day um, who had literally had a hole in his chest wall because uh, he had an infection of his sternum and we had to tailor a specialist orthotic for his, uh, essentially a spinal orthosis to help him. Wow. He had nothing to keep his chest, uh, chest wall up and he was in excruciating pain. That was a really fascinating case. And, mm-hmm. uh, and the wheelchair service, you know, I'm involved in joint seating reviews of these patients and I, I have a, you know, a seating engineer, we have a therapist, we can make our wheelchairs on site. We're, we're very few centres at Bodie Close where we are essentially an NHS service instead of a private provider. And we often do these complex reviews of seated patients. Often they might have spinal deformity, hip deformity, contractures, and we're sort of reassessing their neurodisability. And they want to really know from me if there's any treatable thing here. Uh, so mm-hmm. I liaise with the surgeons, uh, you know, often there isn't because we're, we're, the, the disease is quite advanced, they're, they're more adult age, um, but trying to manage their pain in the context of their seating a bit better. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, it's fascinating. Um, and and then um, I wondered if we could touch a bit on the assistive technology side as well, because obviously I'm thinking particularly with kind of maybe the upper limb prostheses, which have come on such a long way, um, you know, relatively recently, and they're now very technical and just amazing, really. What what are your experiences with, with the assistive technology side of things? Well, I, I mean, I, assistive technology, um, you know, really interests me. And I think that over the next 20 years, we'll, we'll see, you know, a real advancement and progression on lots of different levels, not just the IT side uh, and, and, and telemonitoring of you know, patients, we, we'll be mm. able to get, you know, real time data about prosthetic usage per, per se, um, you know, and lots of areas medicine, you know, we will see a, a real change in the landscape with assistive technology. Um, we've seen it in lower limb prosthetics where we've got the microprocessor knees that have been, mm. you know, are now prescribed on the NHS. And in Scotland, we have the multi-articulated arms that are prescribed there, but not in England. Uh, because there's really a, a, a shortage of actual evidence base for these newer technologies. It's not that they're not effective, but it's also mm. about the right data collection. Uh, yeah. sh- so often the, the, the data collection or the assessments that we do, there's this kind of a ceiling of, uh, of some of these assessments and they don't, aren't able to pick up those more subtle or those improvements. And so I, I, I recently was headed an exciting project and that was to develop two academic symposiums for the World uh, ISPO Congress for, for children and adults. There was two separate symposiums. And I was lucky to, to be supported by ISPO UK uh, under John Sullivan and Alex Chadwell. And we, we got a group together of, you know, prosthetists, uh, therapists, uh, rehab medicine, uh, plastic surgeon, um, uh, really from Australia, Scotland and, and England. And we worked on this for six months and we delivered this and really looking at what is the best practice in this area? Um, where are the challenges? Um, because there's a huge uh, gap between 
Upalim prosthetics, the technology there in sorry in private prosthetics and the mm -hmm. NHS. And we're really, you know, looking at what is the best practice. So in children, you know, really key milestones, particularly in the first year. Um, but looking at where the gaps are, for example, that there isn't really a good prosthetic past 10 years of age in, in the upper limb. And then looking at adults, looking at, um, you know, how we manage with that. And, and but it was really great. And, and so I was wondering for a while where I take this now and um, I'm really looking at the Evelina now, the Children's Hospital in South London, and really looking at how can we make a better pathway for children with limb deformity through a limb deficiency at birth uh, and mm. limb deformity, but also acquired amputation for trauma. But really interesting, how can we make better provision of prosthetics? How can we get a better pathway so these things get picked up better through, uh, you know, you get genetic input, picking up early through neonates and, you know, through... Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, obstetric care and getting a much mm -hmm. better pathway because there isn't those pathways. And particularly in London, where we've got about four or five prosthetic centers around London, there aren't really those pathways or the expertise in prosthetics. So, we're, mm -hmm. you know, I really want to really see if I can change the landscape here and, and, and really bring people together in a, a very much creative and an innovative way. Oh, great. Uh, and I suppose, you know, having your creative background will will be helpful in tackling such a big project like that, Simon. Of course, of course. And, and you, you know, I, I think it's really not been afraid to to go beyond the, your little box. And, yeah. you know, you, and, and unfortunately, medicine it gets quite fragmented. Medicine's very a convergent process. So, uh, you know, symptoms, signs, diagnosis, what we do. But the creative process is much more divergent. You know, if you doing a community project or anything project-based you need to get mm. to gather the data you need to gather the people get a good working group and then really utilize your right brain and and really utilize the creative process first see what's possible see uh, look at ideas and then you can engineer your left brain you know really mm. Uh, mm. carving down what are the key steps and getting key people into your project so yeah, that, that's what really excites me to be involved more on the innovative side. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Fantastic. Well, I suppose watch this space. Uh, we'll, yes. we'll have to see what happens. That sounds great. Um, and then la lastly, I just wanted to ask you about your involvement in neurodisability as well, which is a um, you know, slightly different side of, of things. So you've got an interest in managing patients with polio and also cerebral palsy. So I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about about that. Of course, I kind of fell into that. Uh, my predecessor, Robin Luff, and also Dr. Julian Harris, um, have been running the post-polio service for, for quite some time. And the Lane Fox with the, the movie Breathe, I don't know if anyone's seen that. Uh, it was really about the friendship, about the patient Robin Cavendish and the friendship he had with um, Dr. Spencer. And the Lane Fox had a big, uh, you know, historical um, legacy around the management of polio patients when they were treated in iron lungs and then eventually they developed the technology with non-invasive ventilation and, and really uh, mobile ventilators and so and polio patients often have uh, ventilatory problems either through not breathing enough because of weakness in their chest walls uh, but also not providing enough pressures so that they often uh, their upper airways collapse and they get suffer from sleep apnea. But they all, all these patients um, really have, um, they're faced with new weakness and fatigue 
later on in life, which is a double whammy for them because they often survive their early childhood disability and often highly successful, highly driven people. And then they're faced with this new disease in their 40s and 50s and the tremendous neuromuscular fatigue. So they try and do something like four or fifth time and they literally can't do it. And, and, and their old strategy of, 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 you know, just using effort and sheer determination just doesn't work. So they often face with really just colossal disability. And I look after about a thousand patients with uh, polio and post-polio. I've got about uh, 50 patients, no, sorry, 200 patients less than 50. And I've got about 30 less than 30 from, you know, really the Middle East, Afghanistan, uh, Asia, you know, Pakistan, mm. Afghanistan and so it's really interesting cohort of patients. So you really utilize a range of skills, really holistic, keeping people going from a psychological sense, um, really excluding, um, you know, other disorders like Parkinson's, other neurological mm. disorders, but often um, managing a degenerative joint disease, chronic pain. I often try to um, stop people falling over. We uh, utilize really lightweight orthotics. Um, Often you have to try and get, you know, because the patient might be weak in the upper limbs or the lower limbs, they, they, they benefit from lightweight orthotics or more minimal orthotics, like a fabric brace for their ankle. Or, and mm. I, this is in the context of working with a multidisciplinary team with uh, the orthotists. Uh, we have an uh, OT and physiotherapist. And we also um, manage a, we run a, uh, basically a patient self-management self course, which is an inpatient course. Um, uh, and we've been running that for 20 years. Really, it's a peer-to-peer -peer support, which is really important for rehab and really helping people develop skills uh, in self-management, which is really important for this cohort. Um, mm. Apart from that, I, I have an interest in cerebral palsy and I've been doing quite a lot of spasticity work and, and I'm looking to moving out that service into the community. Um, but that's a, a cohort that's very interesting where there's a gap uh, in the community provision where patients have a really widespread needs, not just about spasticity, uh, but about their, you know, their education, um, their vocational needs, um, and really going from children to adult services, there's really a, a daft of, there's really a gap there. And unless mm -hmm. you have a severe sort of learning disability, you're not really going to be looked after by any particular one service. And it's really patients with long-term disability are really helped by someone coordinating their care. And it's very, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not really high spoke medical skill, but it's, it's really having a team that you can approach when you need it. Yeah. yeah. And it makes such a difference to the patient as well, doesn't it? Yeah. And if there's any of doctors out there who are, you know, unsure about what I'm talking about, you know, they can contact the British Polio Fellowship uh, in the UK and they can read a bit more about the medical needs of these patients. Uh, it's a fascinating group. And we often mm. think about polio as being in the medical textbooks. But, you know, these are patients who suffered from polio in the 60s and sort of 70s. And, and we also have patients who had uh, this from the vaccine, you know, the attenuated vaccine you know, uh, more recently. So, right. um, yeah. you know, so, um, you know, and often they get reactions, you know, the fortifying doctors don't really, aren't really aware of the needs of polio patients. But mm. I think it's really about having awareness how we can, as doctors, we can manage patients with disabilities. 
Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a really great overview. Thank you, Simon. And um, my, my last question is, I, I ask everybody this, um, if you had your time again, would you still choose rehabilitation medicine? I know, I know for you, it was like a long journey to get there, but do you think you would still, that still would be your choice if you were doing things all over again? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's a hard one, isn't it? I think, uh, you know, my journey was very up and down. And I think it's only yeah. now that I can see some of my strengths. And I think for any of the listeners there, it's really identifying your strengths. So, you know, and, and I often say to medical students, you know, when do you feel the most you? Um, and, you know, for me, it was in a Lego competition when I was 12 years of age. And I had to engineer a, a self-propelled rubber, rubber band car. And I went to this competition. I looked at all other people's designs. I got my dad to take me back home and i engineered this amazing car went back and did really well in this competition and actually i think i was about nine years of age or something and i it, it really struck me actually that's when i was really tapping into my intelligence that i really was inventive and yeah. creative and medicine really doesn't sometimes encourage that or able to harness that right brain or really to see your strengths i was always busy trying to get approval and trying to get people to see that I was good too. But, mm. you know, I was good, but I wasn't maybe as, you know, it wasn't my strength in the very logic-focused medicine. And I had to do all that. And and yet I wasn't really in an environment where I was going to really flourish. And, and in some ways, rehab medicine has provided that a little bit. But I'm still young in my career. And I think that I... I, I you know, if I had to do it all again, maybe I wouldn't have done medicine. Maybe I would have become a prosthetist or an orthodontist wow. or maybe wow. I've done architecture or, you know, who knows? But uh, I, uh, I maybe would have been a photographer or something. But, I, you mm -hmm. know, I was at a school where you did medicine, engineering and law. I, mm -hmm. I went to Cambridge, Oxford, and I was on this journey from an early age. And I was very determined. I was never going to give up. Um, and, um, you know, I think it was quite a painful journey for me, if I was honest. Um, mm. And I don't think, you know, uh, medicine really appreciates that. I, I think, you know, when I see people, I think, God, I think, you know, you've just got to take out the, out the chatter out of your mind and really just be clear about what your strengths are. You know, don't yeah. choose your career about whether you think it's like you hear some people say, oh, I'm not doing that because, it's, you know, it's very competitive. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. That's the wrong thinking. You've got to identify your strengths and yeah, you know, and see and, and, and what really you enjoy and. And, and really find out what it really is that, you know, you're really suited for. And usually the, the passion and what you're suited for line up and then there's no stopping you, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, so I, I think... I probably um, didn't really answer your question, but... No, I think uh, you've given... You I think, you know, yeah. <laughs> you've given great advice there, actually, Simon. So I think yeah. it's perfect, really. I agree. I think um, people maybe do need to simplify the process a little bit and just, you know, get down to basics. What are the... What are your key strengths? What are the areas that you, the things that you find fascinating and interesting? And actually, I think medicine is broad, isn't it? And there's all there's always something that suits suits people. But um, yeah, yeah. special. Yeah, like yeah, and and also just focus on the patients. Uh, you yeah. know, there's a lot of politics in medicine, and I think that we're good to just focus on the patients. You know, keep your head down, do the day to day work, and and mm. it will never let you down. Yeah. Yeah.
Oh, great. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us, um, Simon. I think it's been a really great conversation. Um, and, and for any listeners, please do reach out to us on our usual channels. So we're on Twitter at Rehab Roundup One, or um, you can email us rehabroundup at gmail.com. Uh, we haven't yet decided what the focus of the next episode has been, so if you will be. So um, if you have any suggestions, then let us know and we'll try and accommodate them. So thank you very much for listening. Yeah, thank you for having me.